Good morning, church. We are in for something special today. We're going to start a new series. But first, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So many of you responded to our invitation last week. If you weren't here, what I mentioned was, by God's grace, he's been adding to our numbers. By the way, there's about 300 open seats at 8 a.m. Not interested? There's about 100 seats open at 11 a.m. But by God's grace, he has been adding to our numbers. And I mentioned last week that two things happen when, when there uh, tends to be some rapid growth. One is uh, that your volunteerism is a little bit of a lagger and your giving is a little bit of a lagger. Lord willing, those things catch up. And so I made the plea last week that, uh, you know, it takes 150 people uh, to pull off the three Sunday morning services. These are volunteers. Like Scott said, these folks get here at 5, 6 a.m., uh, in the morning, and they're volunteers, you know, and so it takes 150 volunteers to pull off the Sunday morning services. We have an absolute all-star lineup, but the challenge is, again, with three services and when more people come, the resources get spread a little thin, and so I put the call out last week, and you guys really responded well. If you weren't here and you do want to know more, there will be some information out in the lobby, or you can hit that little QR code on the back of the seat in front of you, and then one of the little tabs will pop up, and it'll, it'll say something about serving on Sunday mornings. But again, a huge thank you to those of you who responded just from uh, last week. So today, it's, uh, I'm, I'm super stoked because we're going to start a new series in the book of Romans. We're going to be in this book for several months. Why? Reason is simple. This is the most influential letter ever written. In all of human history, this letter has had more of an impact more shaping effect on the world than any other letter that has ever been penned in the past. For example, in 386 AD, what we would know to be the great theologian Augustine, he was led to a saving faith by reading the book of Romans. In 1515 AD, Martin Luther came to understand who God is, who man is, and how the two can have a right relationship with each other. In a word, he began to understand the grace of God, previously thinking that he had to earn and work his way to God, which, by the way, every other worldview, religion, faith system, whatever you want to call it, outside of Christianity still subscribes to that. But this concept of grace is all throughout this letter, and it was what persuaded Martin Luther to understand what it means to have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, he would go on to say this about the letter. This letter is the chief book in the entire New Testament. It is the purest gospel. It deserves not only to be known word for word by every Christian, but to be the subject of his or her meditation day by day, the daily bread of one's soul. Theologian John Calvin said this, when anyone understands this letter, you have a passage open to the understandings of the entire Bible, the whole scriptures. More than any other book, Romans is used to bring that understanding. Who is God? Who is man? And how do the two come into a relationship that is right? So today we're gonna to get some background information and then we're gonna look at just the first seven verses. So part of that background inf information, understanding is understanding who the letter was intended for. So it was written by the Apostle Paul. We'll talk about him in a, in a moment. But he's writing to Christians that lived in Rome in the first century AD, hence the title of the book, Romans. 
Now, Paul was a very interesting guy. He was, early in life, on the fast track to becoming very successful. He was a student of the master rabbi Gamaliel, which tells us Paul was very intelligent. You see, it was every young man's dream, every good, God-fearing Jewish young man, their dream was to be called, personally selected by a rabbi. You didn't just kind of sign up for rabbi school. The rabbi had to see something in you. And the rabbi would say, come follow me. That's why Jesus had the appearance of a rabbi. He called his 12. That's what rabbis did back in the day. And so this man, Paul, he gets called by Gamaliel. Big deal. The master teacher. Certainly, Paul's dad would have been so proud. What a point of pride. My son Paul was called by Gamaliel, everybody. This is Paul. Outwardly, it's interesting. Extra biblical sources tell us that Paul was rather ordinary looking. He was small. Nothing about his features would be attractive. Very ordinary man, yet he would go on to be one of the most influential men the world has ever known. One other thing you need to know about him. He was anti-Christian. In fact, when he discovered there was this little sectarian group known as the Way, that's what the early followers of Jesus referred to themselves as because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way to God. It's not your Greek gods, it's not your Roman gods. I am the way to God. And they believed that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah. The fulfillment of hundreds of years worth of Old Testament prophecies about a forthcoming Savior. These Christians believed that it was Jesus that fulfilled those prophecies. And so for Paul to think that a human would be the Son of God was absolute blasphemy. These people were heretics and they needed to be annihilated. Christians and Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jews, absolute enemies of the Apostle Paul. In fact, ancient rabbis had a saying. They would wake up in the morning and say, God, thank you that you didn't make me a dog, a woman, or a Gentile. Gentile, Christian, Paul wanted to have nothing to do with you. If you were a Christian, Paul wanted you dead. In fact, we learned that Paul was present at the first death, recorded death, of, of, of the Christian martyr Stephen. We read that as they took off their coats, because you don't want to be encumbered when you're chucking rocks at someone's head, they took off their coats and put them at the feet of a man named Saul. That was his name before he became Paul. And Paul just kind of presided over the stoning of this Christian. One down, let's go find others. He hated Christians. And then... He becomes one. How? Summarize the story in Acts chapter 22. He has papers in hand from authority on high. He was part of this religious group, the Pharisees. They ruled Jewish life. It went from God to the Pharisees to everybody else. You want to know what it's like to have a right relationship with God? You got to go through the Pharisees. Well, Paul was on the fast track to becoming one of the elite. He has papers in hand, official papers, giving him the authority to travel from city to city, enter the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, and say, hey, 
It's, it's Paul here. I'm on mission from on high. I'm here to arrest those who belong to the way. Put an end to it. So he's traveling down this road to, toward Damascus. And this bright light blinds him. He falls on his knees. And then he hears this voice. And it's the voice of Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Which is really interesting because he wasn't like personally persecuting Jesus himself, but he was persecuting his followers. So according to Jesus, if you persecute his followers, bad play for you. According to him, it's like you're persecuting Jesus himself. So he's taken to this guy's house, his sight is restored, and he's been given his apostleship. He's gonna tell you about that in a second, which means he's been put on mission. And now his mission of all things given to him by Jesus is to do two things. Number one, carry the message of Jesus throughout all the world. And number two, to carry that message specifically to, guess who? Gentiles. You're going to hear the word gospel a lot in the book of Romans. And it literally means good news. And the good news in the gospel is that God is reconciling the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And as people are reconciled, watch this now. As people, you wanna know the solution to man's problem? You wanna know, you wanna hear the solution why the world is so jacked up? As people get right with God, they begin to get right with each other. Regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, Oh, but Paul's gonna to talk to you about this in a second. Uh, it's amazing how relevant this text is. Just the very first sentence, the, the pen, is, the ink is hardly dry on the paper and it speaks loudly 2,000 years later. I'm gonna show you how. Okay, so he's writing this letter in large part, I'll tell you why. Because people have heard about the Apostle Paul. Christians have heard about Paul and, and they're like, okay, we know him as a terrorist and now he's coming to our church are you sure this guy's legit? And so much of the content in Romans, now you understand, is Paul saying, Let, just breathe easy. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Let me share with you my belief about Jesus. What's wrong with man? God's solution to that problem. How to have a right relation. Let me, let me just lay down my theology for you. That's why the book of Romans is just so deep you are swimming in the deepest ends of theology because Paul writes and he's like, it's okay. We're on the same team. Let me share with you what I believe about Jesus and what he's done for mankind. And then the hopes that they will open up. There's, oh, if, Paul expresses his desire, ultimate desire, is to take the gospel to Spain. Rome is on the way and Paul is a smart dude. He's like, man, Rome is it. Rome is the hub of civilization. If I can get the church in Rome, if I can fan those gifts, if I can fan those people, if I have those little embers, if I can get that thing going, who knows what kind of reach Christianity will have if we can get it going in Rome. Now, these are people he's never met before. Because he's never met, he has to lay down his street cred, his theology. He's planted a lot of churches. He's never been to Rome. His desire is to go to Rome. He will end up going to Rome on Rome's dime as a prisoner. He doesn't know any of that stuff quite yet, but ultimately he wants to get to Spain. So this is why he's dropping this theology on them. So background, with this in mind, we're gonna dig right into it. Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, 
a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So back in the day, they knew how to write letters. Today, we receive a letter and we have to scan the bottom and say, okay, who is it from? Then we go back up to the top and we begin reading. But back in the day, they introduced themselves at the beginning. It makes sense. So he says, it's me, Paul. You've heard a lot about me. Now, let me tell you. Let me share with you my identity. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. More literally, I am a servant of the Messiah who we know as Jesus. This is big. Paul was a Jew by birth, but he was also a Roman citizen. There isn't a Jew on the planet at this time that would say, well, let me tell you about this man that I serve. No, because Jews only served God. This is what made Jesus' claims about being deity so compelling because you had a bunch of Jews worshiping Jesus, this man, as God. No Jew would do that. Secondly, no Roman citizen in his right mind would say, I'm a servant of this obscure dude born in Bethlehem, raised in the backwater town of Nazareth. That's the guy I serve. So there was something about Jesus. The book of James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was begotten by the Holy Spirit. And what does James say about Jesus? He calls him his Lord and Master. I've got brothers. I've never, ever once referred to either any of them as Master or Lord. That ain't going to happen. Something happened. Something happened with Jesus. Man, all these guys are taking this weird position when they're referring to Jesus. Identity is important. Identity is important. Identity has become a buzzword in our own time. In our own time, identities seem to do more separation than bringing us together, if you think critically about it. Identity is important, and here's why. You will function based on who you think you are. You will dress a certain way. You will use a certain kind of language. You will have certain beliefs, attitudes, and actions based on how you identify. Uh, At one point, Paul says, you know, the wonderful thing about the Christian community is that our primary identity pulls us out of all these earthly identities. Our identity in Christ is the ultimate thing about us. At one point he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. And what is he saying? He's not not saying ethnicities and races are irrelevant. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, in the Christian community, those things aren't the most important. In fact, it's almost as if he minimizes those things. Then he goes on to say, there's neither male nor female. Now, he's not erasing genders. Not erasing genders. What he's saying is, my primary identity isn't in being a man. That's the primary place I find it. Yeah, God created them male and female. From them. You see in creation, light, dark, heaven, earth, good, evil. When God creates, he, he creates creation binaries, male, female. One helps you understand the other. But even in that, Paul says, now, see, in the Christian community, we have this greater identity 
And so now when I'm looking at a woman, remember ancient rabbis said, thank God I'm not a woman now. But when you, when, if you're a Jew and you come to faith in Christ, you can no longer have that attitude toward women because that's your sister now. You've, all, you've been placed in the family of God. See what the identity, you understand? What your identity in Christ does for you, what it does for humanity, it pulls you out of all of the identities that the world wants to use to separate us. <laughs> We're not even done with the first sentence, right? This is just the, these are the opening words. Then he says, I'm called as an apostle. An apostle is someone who's given a mission, his mission. Take this message, this world-changing message, everywhere. And it is the gospel. The gospel is good news. Literally, that's what it means, right? It can only be good news if you understand the bad news. First, the bad news. The Bible contains horrible news, by the way. You might not realize this, but it does. Horrible news. It's the worst news you could ever hear. The Bible tells us that we're sinners separated from God. You know this to be true. No parent has to teach their toddler how to say, no, mine. No parent has to teach their toddler how to hoard his or her toys. No, that comes natural. No parent has to teach their teenager how to be rebellious or talk back or be sassy or... It comes natural rebellion. It's source pride, ego, arrogance. The other day, someone asked me, how can I be humble? I said, well, you wanna be humbled? Get married. <laughs> That'll do it. I'll never forget the first time Jill said to me, I heard the best sermon the other day. And then she proceeded to tell me the man's name. <laughs> and, and I was like, how long have you been cheating on me? If you want to take it to the next level, have kids. Just the other day, my daughter said, Dad, really, what would it look like for you to accomplish something big? I don't know, it'd probably have something to do with you moving out, you know? <laughs> That'd be big. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's there, isn't it? What, what news would there be if it wasn't for human depravity? Your news feed just got a lot smaller. Bad news. Bad news gets even worse because it tells us that the wages, what's owed as we work sin, it's why the world is so jacked up because of you and me, to a greater or lesser degree, we all participate in it. It's our self-centeredness. That leads to death, physical and spiritual. There, there, are, there are, are, are acts of rebellion you can involve yourself in, and you can have your life taken from you physically. In the garden, that's where it started. One of the consequences is now mankind will taste death. But it's also a spiritual separation in that things aren't right between you and the God who created you, man. Things are not cool there. They're just not. You've... You, you've brought the disruption into that relationship. You know, it's like God's laws, God's standards, and lest you think you get away with it, you're not as good as you think. That's why in the Old Testament, it tells us, for those who think you're, you're, you know, you're all that, let's just take the 10 commandments, okay? This is God's perfect standard. 
How many of you have lied within the last 24 hours? Guilty. How many of you have had a lustful thought in the last 24 hours? Guilty. How many of you have, have stolen something? Ever once in a guilty? That's just three. Three. You're done. You're ruined. You're done. Well, that's the point. You can't make it on your own. You can't be good enough. Big problem. That's separation from God. Now the good news. You don't have to. Jesus was sent, and because he was both human and divine, the justice of God, we see this displayed every day in our law system. We want justice. We want punishment to come. It's just not towards us. But it must. The justice of God must. Otherwise, God would not be true to himself. It must fall on us. And so now, the justice of God and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God collide. And Jesus is nailed to a cross. And upon himself, all your wrongs are dumped. And in exchange, you get eternal life. Good deal for you. Amen. That is the gospel. And Paul says, to this message, I am called. A servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And by the way, this message is nothing new. It's nothing new. Men of old received word from God talking about this forthcoming salvation. That's why he says, which he, God, promised beforehand, ahead of time. How so? Through, through these men, these prophets, in the Holy Scriptures, it's in the Bible. His message isn't new. If you read your Old Testament, you're going to read it. You're going to see things like this. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus is born, says this, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Verse three and four, concerning his son, that's who we're talking about, Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. How many times does he say Jesus Messiah, our master? Here's what he's saying. Here's what I believe about Jesus, Paul says. Don't be worried about me coming to you. I believe that Jesus was both human and divine. And I believe that he's the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophets who spoke of this forthcoming Messiah, that the Spirit of God would be upon him as Isaiah said. Well, how would we know that? Well, this is divinity. The fact that Jesus came back from the dead means that he had access to divine power. Okay? The fact that he was crucified, that his blood would be shed. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. He died in our place. That's what allowed him to absorb our sins. Human and divine coming together on the cross. Not a new message. You read the Old Testament carefully, and one was foretold who would do all this. And this is Paul going right to the heart of the matter. This is the reason why we Christians are so hung up on Jesus and who the Bible says he was. It's not enough to simply say, 
Jesus is a good person, a good moral teacher, said a lot of profound things. Jesus Christ, our Lord, that's the title. It's interesting because so many people are wrapped up, a lot of people are into UAPs, UFOs right now, man. This thing, this is a big deal right now, right? They wanna know about end times. They wanna know about supernatural beings. The Bible speaks of an antichrist. Everybody wants to know, who is it? Who's the antichrist? The Bible gives a very straightforward description. You know who the antichrist is? He's gonna come on the scene and he's gonna start talking. And you know what his message is gonna be? Jesus is not the Christ. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is not the Messiah. That's what he's gonna say. Literally, that's what the text says. Who is the Antichrist? The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Why? Why is that such an important thing? Because if Jesus isn't the Messiah, there's no guilt offering for all of the wrongs that we've done. That's why what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. This is the thing that separates biblical Christianity from cults. Who is Jesus? The way you answer that question determines your eternal destination, according to Jesus himself. Let me tell you why, another reason why this is so important. Think this through with me. If Jesus came back from the dead, then that means everything he said about himself is true. You ever think about that? Because Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm back. I'm coming back. Three days, I'm back. If that's true, everything else he spoke must also be true. So how do we know it's true? Well, this is an entire sermon series on itself, and we've done a little bit of this in the past. Simon Greenleaf is considered the grandfather of modern-day litigation, he had this uh, prestigious position at Harvard. He was the Dane Professor of Law. He actually wrote a book, and it's titled An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. So in other words, he decided to take the secular approach. So he took the, the four accounts of the life of Jesus here that you'll find in your New Testament, and he said, you know what, let's, let's apply the rules of law. Let's, let's just put this evidence in a courtroom. And when we'll decide if the evidence is in support of the resurrection or, or, or not. And uh, this is his conclusion. According to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. So now you have to deal with that. Because one of the reasons why you all wanna dismiss Jesus is so that you don't have to live accordingly. But if God is real and Jesus is real, doesn't it stand to reason that they probably have something to say about how I should live my life? And here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's where you're, you've been blindsided, okay? You think that following and obeying the scriptures, the Bible, will rob you of your life. You couldn't be more wrong. It is the very thing that will give you your life. God is the author, creator, and sustainer of all life. Therefore, he knows how life is to be lived best. That's why the purity of the gospel is vitally important, very important to Paul. A lot of his letters we get because there were teachers who were, they were messing things up, teaching false doctrine. The purity of the gospel is vitally important. Verse five, through whom, Jesus, we have received grace, 
and apostleship. We've received our purpose in life, our mission, our identity to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. We have this amazing opportunity to represent Jesus to everybody watching, including you. He's like, this, this, this isn't my calling. This is you, Christian. You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you. Paul's like, let me tell you, if anybody understands grace, I do. If God could save a wretch like Paul, he can save anyone. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're gonna hear this word grace a lot. Unmerited favor, nothing you could do to earn it or deserve it. It's not like God looked at Jason and went, man, I like that guy. He is so likable. No, what happened was God saw right into my heart and was like, ooh, that's messed up. But he's gonna be on my team anyways. And what's gonna happen is, the more he understands my grace in his life, the more that junk's gonna melt away. Because grace is kind of like this. If you work a job eight hours a day for two weeks, you're gonna receive a wage. You've earned that wage. You train, you compete as an athlete, you win, you receive a trophy, you've earned that. You've been working for the company for 30 years and you retire. What do they give you? A watch. You've earned it. Grace is receiving the gift, the award, the bonus, and so much more, having never worked, having never competed, and really doing nothing on your part other than the acknowledgement that you need it, that you need it. Earlier I said, there's a disruption in your relationship with God and it's your fault, my fault, it's on us, it's on us. And you know this to be true in your human relationships, you have them now. You have some relationships that you're recovering from, you have some relationships that you're in the midst of still working out. Some of those relationships that we're still trying to work out is because either we or the people who have offended us have not made an attempt to, in humility, make things right. So there's friction there, isn't it? Because your guard is up. If you don't acknowledge how you've hurt me, ooh, I'm gonna stay away from you. I'm only gonna get so close to you. But as you begin to say, you know what, this is on me. That's me, I shouldn't have done that. I acknowledge that I did it. Here's exactly what I did. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Will you take me back? Can we, can we have the relationship again? So without that, there's no real relationship between the two of you. Same is true in your relationship with God. That's why the Bible says, it's that repentance, that repentance. That's the move that you make. And God always responds. But the basis is Jesus himself. That's why, before Jesus leaves the planet, I mean like hours before his crucifixion, He's sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, gathers them together, and he's like, teachable moment, gentlemen. I'm gonna take everything you know about the Passover meal that you've celebrated and our ancestors have celebrated for hundreds of years, and I'm gonna turn it upside down, and I'm gonna apply it to me, because I am the substance of that Passover shadow. 
what does he say? Remember me. What about me? Jesus said a lot of things. In that moment, he doesn't quote from the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, he says, remember my death. Because without my death, none of this is possible. I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. Just to free you from any distractions. Okay, so we made it through maybe two sentences. And you can see why this book is so influential. But it's all about Jesus. It's about the gospel, it's about the good news. We're about to participate in what Christians have done for a couple thousand years. Why? Because Jesus tells us to do this and remember me, remembering his death. The Apostle Paul tells us to take this in a worthy manner. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, we would invite you to do so. It begins with a simple prayer, just acknowledging all the things that you know to be true about yourself in that separation. God meets you right where you're at. The Apostle Paul encourages Christians then to take this in a way that is worthy. I think there's a lot there. That might involve some confession. I think it also involves some gratitude, expression of thankfulness. And then the Spirit of God uses this to speak to us because this is the softening agent in your life, you know, all that God has done for you through Jesus. Motivates you to want to do things in kind for those around you. So there'll be a scripture on the screen. We'll give you a couple of minutes in meditation and then and when time is right, I'll come back up and I'll lead us. Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, says, this is now my body, broken for you. As often as you eat the bread, do so and remember me. He takes the cup, 
It says this cup represents a new covenant. Think of the Old Testament as the Old Covenant. It's old sacrificial system now being done away with, replaced. Blood of animals replaced the perfect blood of Jesus. It's a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink, remember me. Father, we stand in that long line. Men like the Apostle Paul, those brothers and sisters in the faith community for the last 2,000 years that have taken the gospel forward, understanding that our identity first and foremost is rooted in you and we function. The obedience of faith is tied to our sainthood. It all begins with what Jesus did for us on the cross. God, as we leave this place, pray that you would encourage us, help us to see more and more the goodness of Jesus in our lives. And it's expressed through our words, our actions, our attitudes. When all is said and done, we want to take as many people to heaven with us as possible. For our good, but in all things, ultimately, for your glory. We ask it in the one who gave his life for us. His name is Jesus Christ, and God's people said,